Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate investor and broker joined here by none other than Nick Hill. Thanks for the lovely introduction, Dan. Nick Hill here, uh, co-host of this podcast, mortgage agent, real estate investor, and uh, here to talk about landlording and and tenants today, uh, but not in their traditional sense, Dan. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking at, about one of the biggest tenants in the world and one of the biggest landlords in the world, and we'll discuss how they became so big and what asset class they dominate and what we can learn from the way that they do business and whether or not this kind of industry trend presents opportunity for smaller investors. For sure. So before we dive into that, any uh, housekeeping things that we want to go over, maybe mention uh, course is still in the show notes. We've got a great newsletter that is uh, being opened by more and more people getting more subscribers there. So if you want to get a much shorter version of these shows that you can read, uh, sign up for those. Obviously, merch and meetups are both in the show notes as well. So a whole bunch of good stuff in there. Check them out. Let us know if you have any questions. Shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Absolutely. Lots of links in the show notes. We got courses, merch, and meetups. Love to see okay. you at any of those things. So let's talk about the biggest asset class and the biggest tenant in the world or among the biggest. So when Jeff Bezos isn't launching himself into space, he's on the hunt for another trophy property to add to his already impressive real estate portfolio. Early this year, the Amazon founder reportedly acquired a 14-acre compound in Hawaii for a whopping $78 million in a kind of mysterious off-market deal, which brought the value of his personal real estate holdings to an astronomical over half a billion dollars at $578 million. The billionaire has picked up several properties in his home state of Washington, a number of sexy New York City apartments, and a few sprawling estates in California. Of course, he's got a ranch in Texas and a number of other places in Washington, D.C. But we aren't necessarily here to talk about Jeff Bezos and his real estate interests, although that is pretty fascinating. We are here to talk about the business he started from humble beginnings that turned into a global powerhouse. You might have heard of it, Amazon. And what is Amazon doing with real estate? So it's called the Amazon effect. The e-commerce giant has reshaped, well, almost everything from the way we consume to the way the consumers think about shopping and even accessing goods on that global supply chain. For institutional investors, the Amazon effect has squarely placed industrial properties as the darling of commercial real estate market and Amazon tenants are among the most coveted. Amazon has plans to open an additional 1,000 small delivery hubs near population centers throughout the United States to bring products closer to their consumers. As a direct result of growth from the e-commerce companies like Amazon, our friends at CBRE predict the U.S. will need an additional 1.5 billion square feet of industrial space within the next five years alone. This activity has made industrial distribution properties among the most sought after real estate asset classes. 
Yeah, the, and this whole last mile trend and distribution trend. I mean, I've I've received a number of calls on this, the trend in a micro space where you have people who are running Amazon stores that need the space or people who are running Amazon third-party delivery services that need the space. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're looking for 2,000 to 4,000 square foot spaces. Like this is a this is a gap that can be filled by small investors. Anyway, as of 2021, Amazon's fulfillment centers average about 800,000 square feet in size. Wow. The total number of Amazon warehouses in the USA alone, both current and confirmed, have amassed approximately 319 million square feet. That is just crazy. Well, here's a little fun fact about that for you, Dan. You could fit 138,695 average American-sized houses on a square foot basis into the space that's occupied by Amazon warehouses. So there you go. Amazing. So put, just put some bunk beds in those 800,000 square feet. Boom. Housing crisis solved. <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting for them to start warehousing houses and selling them to solve the housing crisis. So, um, so Amazon's total uh, of 10 in Ontario and 16 in Canada and Crestpoint's Real Estate Investments Limited has acquired the largest fulfillment center ever completed in Canada, the multi-level 2.8 million square foot Amazon facility in the south end of Ottawa. So here's a list of all of the major fulfillment locations in Canada for Amazon. I'll start us off. So we have 450 Derwent Place, Delta, British Columbia. In I guess it serves the Vancouver market. Then we've got uh, the first of the Ontarios, one at uh, Mill Creek Drive in Mississauga. One on Petty Drive, just a short drive away from Mississauga and Milton. Uh, the next two, actually, both in Brampton, one on Winston Churchill Boulevard and the other one's on Heritage Road. If, for those of you not in the GTA, those four that we just mentioned, Mississauga, Milton, Brampton, and Brampton, are, would all be within like 20 miles of each other, 20 kilometers of each other, I believe. We got next one is in Braid Street, New Westminster, BC. We've got another one in BC, again, in Delta at Derwent Place. That's uh, the one I already mentioned, actually. Next one's uh, Salish Seaway in Sawasin, BC. It's actually Tawasin. Oh, there you go. There we go. Calgary. Uh, Calgary, Alberta on Robertson Way. Same. The next one's the same one, I think. Cross Eye, yeah, Colonel Robinson and Cross Iron Boulevard. Uh, Boundary Way in Navan, Ontario. Uh, another one in Bolton, Ontario. One on Steeles Ave in Scarborough, so another one in the GTA. Uh, Nisku, Alberta. Blundell Road in Richmond, BC. And then to finish it off, two more in Ontario. We've got Hamilton and then that one that they mentioned, which is the biggest in Ottawa, which was actually a key factor for a lot of investors that invest in and around the Ottawa area. And we'll get to that later on, kind of close to the end of the episode. So according to the Wall Street Journal, Amazon holds over $57 billion worth of land and buildings. That's more than any other U.S. public company other than Walmart, making them one of the largest real estate owners in the world. Amazon leases about 570 million square feet of space, and they own more than 35 million square feet of of space. So Amazon is in the real estate game, but it's not their core business. So enter Prologis, sometimes known as Amazon's landlord. Prologis Inc. is a San Francisco-based industrial REIT that owns and manages over 5,000 industrial logistics properties from New York to California and in 18 other countries. 
Prologis is the largest REIT by market cap with a cap rate of $13.02 billion, and Amazon makes up over 7% of Prologis business. So here are just some staggering facts about Prologis' business that may help put things into perspective here. $2.7 trillion is the economic value of goods flowing through our distribution centers each year, representing 2.8% of the world's GDP and 4% of the GDP of the 19 countries where we do business, or 36% of goods consumed in the USA. And to top it off, there are over 1.1 million employees under Prologis roofs. Dan, before we go on, what do you think about those numbers? We're talking like literally global GDP. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just wild and meaningful. And, and I think that uh, an important thing to look at when you think about you know, geopolitics, onshoring, what's happening, what are the next big trends in, in real estate in North America and in Canada? Um, when we talk about, you know, everybody talks about the housing crisis in Canada and how residential property is so oversubscribed, we're like less than 1% vacancy. Same thing is true for industrial property in, in Canada right now. This yeah. is what happens when you're in a growing economy. Yeah, you're so right. And if you're a long-time listener to the show, and we've done a lot of episodes kind of going over the different asset classes, obviously industrial has come up dozens of times on the show. But Dan and I have been around long enough to know that industrial for a while was not cool. It was it was kind of the forgotten asset. And, uh, you know, before, you know, even before COVID, COVID obviously changed that drastically. And for the last several years, industrial has been the hot real estate asset. Sorry, Dan, I think you were going to add to that there. No, no, it's all good. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So Hamid Mogadam, the CEO, was the highest paid executive of a publicly traded real estate firm, pulling in $25 million in bonuses and other comp- compensation. He takes a salary of $1 per year, but owns at least $500 million worth of Prologis stock. What a nice guy, eh? Only a buck a year. <laughs> Um, but so who is Hamid Mogadem and what can we learn from one of the world's biggest landlords? Born in 1956 in Iran, he grew up in Tehran where his father was a businessman. In 1969, he attended school in Switzerland and in 1973, he entered the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, otherwise known as MIT, where he received a bachelor's and master of scientific degrees in engineering. And in 1980, he received an MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business in California. Early on, he decided working for someone else wasn't for him. He teamed up with a friend, Douglas Abbey, and a prominent real estate lawyer, T. Robert Burke, to form AMB Property Corporation. They took out a $50,000 loan from Crocker National Bank, bought a $200 coffee table and rented a fifth floor office at 505 Montgomery Street in San Francisco's financial district. They targeted a raise of $100 million, but could only pull together $70 million. Even that, Mogadam said, was a victory. The partners opted to bet on strip malls and industrial properties, an unusual move back in the 1980s and 90s, given that warehouses were focused on manufacturing and good storage for physical retailers. Mogadam saw industrial and neighborhood retail as the steadiest source of real returns as neither required huge amounts of capital to maintain. AMB launched two more funds, 
eventually raising $400 million cash vehicle. By 1997, it had almost $3 billion in assets under management and counted Stanford, the World Bank Pension Plan, and the Ford Foundation as clients. It filed to go public. At the time of the IPO, which is an initial public offering, about two-thirds of AMB's portfolio was industrial, while the rest was strip malls. Wall Street wanted cohesion, though, and they wanted focus, not a bag of mixed messages and different types of properties, as one insider put it. Mogadem then decided to zero in on industrial, selling those 25 retail properties they had in 1999 for a staggering $560 million. And he always tells a little story about how they found some fool to overpay for those properties. I decided not to fully include that, but it's a funny little anecdote. So AMB's move to go after Prologis in 2010 stunned industrial investors. But Mogadem saw it as an eat or be eaten moment for himself and for his company, AMB. AMB had about 158 million square feet of real estate at the time. Prologis had nearly three times that. But Mogadam sensed an opening given Prologis' precarious balance sheet with losses of over 400 million in the fourth quarter of 2009. In 2011, Mogadam orchestrated the combination between AMB and Prologis to create Prologis, the largest logistics real estate company in the world. Mogadam currently serves as a Prologis chairman and CEO. Okay, so that's a little bit about Prologis and Mogadam, but we're not done yet. This next section of the podcast comes from one of the best Twitter followers out there, a gentleman and a scholar known by the Duke of Dirt who puts lists like this together. We've done a few of them on the show before. So he has accumulated all of Mogadam's uh, insights and knowledge over the past 40 years, collected them from the various interviews he's done and distilled, this, distilled them down for us in a very, very easy manner into 10 lessons that every investor should know. So Dan, you and I are going to go one for one here and then chat about how to apply these, how we apply these maybe in our business and how other people can do the same thing. Let's do it. The first one is culture is the only form of sustainable competitive advantage. Competitors can copy everything you do from your capital structure to your investment thesis. It's extremely tough to copy a culture's firm. Oh, sorry, uh, the, the culture of a firm. Culture can be a differentiator in sustaining for the long term. So, Dan, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's an, an exceptionally important thing in building a business and building a, you know, a small real estate investment business. When, you, when we talk about a lot about our power team, right? It's, is everybody on the same page? Do we even have an identifiable culture in this business, let's call it, or in this team of people that I've put together? And can, am I, am I thinking about it that way? Or am I kind of just flying by the seat of my pants? Or am I thinking about this as a place that I can carve out a meaningful competitive advantage? I mean, look at some of the biggest and best businesses in the world, especially when we're going into a recessionary period where you do see a lot of M&A activity, mergers and acquisitions. And when you have businesses that are becoming worth less and less, um, when they get purchased, in a lot of cases, the buyer is looking to, to take advantage or take or take over the management team of those businesses, and that says that speaks volumes in itself. Yeah, that's such a great point, and 
It's it's you know it's really true, especially in a, in today's day and age where things are getting very highly competitive. Right, that second line competitors can copy everything you do from your capital structure to your investment thesis. It's hard to be unique with those types of offerings. You know, we have a debt brokerage, and I never try to sell us on hey we'll get you the best rates because. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Maybe our competitors will be able to get you exactly the same thing we do, but it comes down to the people within that organization, the power team, as you said, Dan, that can and do make the real difference. So I completely agree with this one. What uh, what do we have next here, Dan? Next, we got a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. The biggest opportunities lie in the darkest days. If it weren't for the GFC, global financial crisis, Mogadam says that the merger that we were talking about before between A and B and ProLogis would have never happened. Having your eyes open to realize that the big opportunities are arguably more valuable in times of distress. Um, this is something we talk a lot about. And since the beginning of the show, or we opened this podcast with an episode about what happens to real estate in a rising rate environment. And, you know, fortunately, most of the calls that we made on that episode were correct. And And I remember saying... I really do think that this downturn is going to present once-in-a-lifetime purchasing opportunities for our generation of, of real estate investors. And I still believe that. And I think that we are very, very close to those opportunities beginning to reveal themselves. So I couldn't agree more with what Mogadam says here. Yeah. And you know, it's not even just Mogadam. We've heard this so many times, right? Sam Zell did the same thing. All these other real yeah, estate- the grave dancer. The grave dancer, all these other, and we've done an episode similar to this on Sam Zell, so go back and check that out. But, um, you know, if it wasn't for the global financial crisis, the merger between these two companies would have never happened. Well, yeah, that's because Prologis at that time was over levered and AMB wasn't. They had, they had been small and agile and, you know, it, I just, it, it really does come down to positioning yourself correctly in a time like this. It could be another 30, 40 years, 20 years at the minimum before we see another recessionary period like the one we're going into. So how do we capitalize on this? And I think that, you know, we've seen numerous people do it in the past and, you know, now it's our turn. So it's about taking those lessons and applying them to what you're doing in your business. Let's keep going here. The third lesson, it's not about the next deal. It's about leveraging the platform. The average customer won't be as efficient in procuring services on site as Prologis will be. This economy of scale allows Prologis to deliver a cheaper, more efficient product, thus a stickier relationship. So he actually said pre previously, in addition to leasing space, there is a program known as the Essentials Platform that Prologis offers. And that's where Prologis actually supplies equipment, robotics, and other services to its customers to enhance those business operations. Is that something, is that, is that value adding, Dan, right there? Is that what that's called? Some folks smarter than I might call that value add. <laughs> so, I mean, this to me, you know, okay, obviously Prologis, you know, biggest real estate for one of the biggest real estate holders in the world, you know, you listening, you've probably got two, three duplexes. Well, how the hell do you apply this to that? Well, it's simple. You you be a better landlord because that is exactly what Prologis is doing here. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, and we've heard this time and time again from people that we've spoken about on the show and people that we've spoken with on the show. I mean, if you if you look back to our episode with Chip Wilson and David Ferguson from um, 
low tide properties, um, you know, they said they prioritize relationships. They, they, this is your customer at the end of the day. You have a subscription model, the original subscription model, where you ha- all you have to do is provide one product or service to a customer and do a good job at it, and they have to pay you every single month for that product. Get to know them. Like Fundamentally, as human beings, the only thing that we can do in life is communicate our needs with one another and then choose whether or not to meet those needs for the other party. Um, if you learn what your customer's needs are and you're able to meet them, they will always come back to you and they will always pay you more. Pretty simple stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I also think, you know, it's it's how many pull factors can you add to this, right? If you are in a highly competitive space, right? I mean, Prologis and, and the warehousing and distribution space is likely more competitive in, in some markets than, you know, small multifamily. But let's compare how do you if you have a small multifamily or an airbnb or any whatever kind of real estate business you're running what are the pull factors the unique selling propositions the the things that are going to differentiate your you and your assets to uh to your competitors and make them more attractive for your clients which are of course as dan just said your tenants to want to come and not only pay you but to stay longer and to treat the property better and and all those other good things for sure the next on the list is take on bold moves early in your career Mogadam emigrated from Iran and attended MIT at the ripe age of 16 years old. A little bit of an wow. overachiever, I think. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this opportunity early in life has launched him to becoming one of the most respected and powerful business people in the world. I mean, I completely agree with this. If you're not taking risks and, and making moves when you are young or, or younger and 16 is obviously really young. I mean, that's like literally half my age. That makes me feel old now, but... You know, um, I think it comes down to a, a time and a place and a risk tolerance. And if you if you have those, you know, the luckier you get, right? The it's a it's a combination of being in the right place at the right time, and you want to be in as many places as many times as you can be. And to do that, you've got to be um, you got to be smart and you got to be taking risks. So I completely agree. The more risk uh, and bold moves you can take earlier. And, and that just doesn't mean, for me, that doesn't mean career or, or it doesn't have to be attached to age. It can be, hey, I'm switching careers. I'm moving into real estate investing. I'm in year one. I'll tell you right now, you better be a lot riskier in year one than you are in year 15 when you're established and maybe just trying to maintain a stabilized portfolio rather than grow it. I think, um, you know, the other piece is that things compound, right? And if you make a decision early on, and it's a good one, it'll compound positively. And if you make a decision early on and it's a bad one, it'll compound negatively. And the path that you set yourself on, you start adding good decisions on top of good decisions and the return on those good decisions, the original ones, just gets better and better because they compound. So, Yeah, exactly. And honestly, Dan, we were just saying we were going to do a whole segment on on compounding and just the effects that it has in, in business and, and real estate. So, so t- stay tuned for that. Let's keep moving here. Number five, the fifth lesson. It does not matter what your first job pays. Join a great company and work for a great boss. The knowledge learned early on will pay tenfold over the course of one's career. What are your thoughts on that one, Dan? Um, my perspective is a little bit different on this one. Like I, I understand the merit. Actually, I guess I would have done this. I just got it out of the way during university because I was in co-op. Um, 
and I was co-oping at some great companies and working for some great bosses and learning as much as I could. I, I would agree that the knowledge that you learn early on will pay tenfold over the course of, of your career. And I think that that's that piece. I just don't know if necessarily it needs to take shape of a job. It could be just surrounding yourself with the right people. It could be, you know, if you're if you're a service professional in the real estate space, if you're a mortgage broker or a realtor or whatever, it could be finding yourself a great client. I guess that is a job because that's what I, I really have found the ability to do is surround myself with investors who I say, look, I want to help you find, I want help you find your next investment. And I get to look at the way things, the way that they do for that period of time. So, and I would, but I would agree that the knowledge learned early on has paid tenfold over the course of my career. Yeah, for sure. I, and I think this is, this is a great um, step in the right direction for anyone looking for that mentor, which we talk about, you know, this, this to me, uh, it doesn't even matter if it's your first job, it just matters to be like, join a great company and work for a great boss. Well, that doesn't have to be traditional joining a great company and working for a great boss in that traditional sense. Um, this could be again, just surrounding yourself with the, the right people, surrounding yourself with investors, surrounding yourself with people who are doing it for longer than you have. And that knowledge, um, whether it's through osmosis or or you're forcing it out of those people or you're helping them doing whatever it is, you know, whether it's creating videos or finding deals. I do think that there are that element of, of sacrifice, right? Like I'm giving up my time and effort uh, for knowledge instead of money because I know that this piece of knowledge that you've given me, this experience that you've given me could be worth multiple six figures rather than the, you know, 20 bucks an hour that you're going to pay me to do these menial tasks kind of thing. So I think if we like extrapolate that and look at it from a bit of a different perspective, that really is a, a thing that both you and I have done. I know, I know that for sure. And, and honestly can continue to do right. I mean, I'll, I'll sacrifice finances to, to work with a, a, a great team uh, every time. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, and I think that the point is that, you know, it's a, temporary sacrifice if you're working with a great team because they're going to help you solve that financial problem pretty exactly quickly. exactly next up we have even in a declining business there are good opportunities mogadam uses the railroad as an example although many would agree the trajectory of a railroad industry is not hugely upward there's still immense opportunity and fortunes to be made here weren't we just having a chat about the railway a couple of weeks ago I think it was like when we were driving along the 401, talking about the potential for to completely change Canada if they just increase the speed of the rail that runs from Montreal yeah. to Toronto and has a handful of stops along the way. It might have been more complaining instead of chatting and saying, why do we have like literally one train that runs from... So there's something called like the Windsor... Um, I guess Windsor, like Montreal corridor, which basically is the the 401. If you're listening to this outside of uh, the GTA, the 401 runs, and and that whole area is like the most densely populated area of the country, and it's it's drastically underserviced from a railroad, um, from a railroad sign. So yeah, I mean, I th I just think that with with this, you know, the railroad business isn't. Uh, isn't exciting and sexy and exciting from the from the outside of things and guess what neither is the warehousing and logistics business but uh there's a lot of money to be made in the you know the stuff that doesn't have all the the shiny features on it as well for sure number seven anything that has to do with moving data or atoms has a good future 
Logistics and data centers are primed to capitalize on the global trend of e-commerce. Now, before we banter on this one, Dan, I uh, just want to give everyone a quick reminder, dictionary of uh, what a data center is. So a data center is a physical location that stores computing machines and their related hardware equipment. It contains the computing infrastructure that IT systems require, such as servers, data storage drives, and network equipment. So it's literally a physical facility that stores any kind of digital computer data. Now, Dan, what do you think about this? You're uh, you're a bit more tech savvy than I am. So you agree with this? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think that these spaces are just growing in size. I mean, there's the, the demand for space to house the internet is becoming increasingly large. And it, it, it seems like the, the, amount of data is outgrowing the our ability to store it in a small in smaller fashion. So I would say I agree with that, whether you like it or not, because it does kind of feel like majorly ecologically destructive when you consider uh, all the garbage on the internet. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> like the amount of electricity just being burned to host. Anyway, I'll just stop there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So this is a clean show. So we'll leave it at that. Use your imagination or don't. You know, for anyone who hasn't been in a data center, they are they are a weird place to uh, to be. Um, it's essentially they're very very high security, uh, like biometrics and sign ins just to just to get in a series of doors until you go into what's known as a completely clean space, like literally no dust on the ground. You could eat a meal off the floor in these data centers, and they are kind of cold storage as well because the uh, computer systems produce a lot of heat so you have to keep them cool very strange kind of eerie spaces i've had the the opportunity and to to explore a few of them over my years but again i think it's going to be one of these random real estate assets that we that we see grow quite a bit and there's a few major um major players in that space too maybe maybe it warrants an episode well yes we'll see. i think um the biggest i think like a good portion of the Canadian internet is on 151 Front Street in Toronto, which is it's exactly allied. Yeah. yeah, which is that's actually the one. I've, that's the one I've been in. Actually, one of the two I've been in. And um, it's also worth noting that web hosting is th- done through AWS, Amazon Web Services. Uh, that's their hosting thing. And um, so when we're you know circling back to Amazon being one of uh, Prologis's largest tenants, AWS is a huge component of their business. That. Bezos saw, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago as that was going to be become a huge opportunity. And, and, and that's what they do. Basically, they, they, it's like their carrier hotels, their data centers, and, uh, and just a growing part of their business. I'll look up exactly what portion of their, um, of their business it is. But if fascinating part is that, you know, this stuff requires, or it thinks about the same urban economic equation as industrial real estate, because you have to be close to the, the, the center's to which you're supplying the data because you get things like line loss and stuff like that. So exactly. Dan, the one on front street that you mentioned actually um, is completely integral to the Canadian banking system, right? Because that's where the banks that are only a few blocks away in the financial district down in the core, uh, that's where they house a lot of their data. Then that's why there's those extreme security measures. Yeah. And it's a good segue to uh, the next one, which is great location. And uh, but before that, AWS um, is sixteen percent of Amazon's total revenue. Just for context, wow, so, yeah, yeah. So that's literally their hosting of data in physical space. A couple billion, yeah. 
So number eight here, it's tough to lose owning great locations in supply constrained areas. Where have we heard this one before? If your um, real estate everywhere. Is, yeah. <laughs> if your real estate is positioned in an area in which developers are unable to build new buildings, it is very hard to lose. Seek out these locations and hold. Sounds like the entire country. I was going to say, this is kind of a developer 101 right here or real estate 101, right? Location, location, location. And uh, especially in those supply constrained areas, which just means there's not a lot of good stuff there. Anything else to add to this one, Dan, before we keep going? No, I think we're good. Number nine, we're almost finished here. Planning is important. Plans are not. It's important to strategize and think through the implications of certain investment decisions. But the world is rapidly changing the environment and the best business people react on a moment's notice. Okay, this one's this one's funny because there's real there's a real two sides to this to this argument. There's the proactive and the reactive. And Dan, you and I, you know, we're in a constant battle of being proactive when we when we can and we love to do so because that gets us ahead we're planning uh but the industry and the economy that we're in right now and just the nature of the beast of of real estate and rental properties and deals in general things change at the drop of a hat a deal can be going extremely well until literally the 11th hour and then something horrible happens and you can't be proactive because you are now reacting to a situation that has just happened a lot of this comes down to from my perspective the balance between making good decisions and being good at making decisions. And they're very Ooh, different. I like it. If you are being if you're good at making decisions, you typically can make decisions quickly. Like you can decide quickly, being decisive, let's call it. And then on the other side, you have people who are probably more indecisive and have a hard time making decisions, but are more likely to make good decisions. Somewhere in the middle is probably the optim optimization, but like I've always found that I'm very good at making decisions. Like you give me two options, I can make a decision on one of those two options quick. The chances of it being the good decision, the best decision in the fullness of time, very, very <laughs> unlikely. You know, Steph, my partner, on the other hand, um, takes a lot longer to make a decision, but always makes a far better decision than I would. And so <laughs> the balance is good. And I think that if people can strive to have that kind of similar balance, um, th you know, this is just human nature stuff, but uh, it always has always fascinated me because like I, I can reach a, uh, a conclusion or a decision very quickly, but I could never tell you that it, I was confident that it was the right one. Yeah, that's uh, that's funny. Um, and I just want to go back to that first line there. Planning is important. Plans are not. You know, Dan, we talk a lot about, about planning. Write a business plan. Write your goals. What are your what are your goals for next week? What are your goals for today? What are your goals for next year and ten years from now? That is in plan. That's planning. That is important because that gives you a framework to work within. Plans change. Plans aren't important. Plans are not as important because you can still reach your goals and you can still work within that planning framework if your plans change. So I think it's just about remembering what the end goal is and figuring out ways to get there as you bounce back and forth between being reactive and proactive. I think it's a big piece of it is being deliberate with with this stuff. So, and, the, and this is the reason why you would go through the exercise of planning. I mean, if you go back to the very beginning about making one good decision early, I think that the exercise of planning would, would be that. And like I've written 
one page business plans for things before and never looked at them again. But the reality is I went through the exercise of doing it and now it's in my head and I put it out there that I know who my customer is. I know what my marketing channels are. I know what things, what my goals are and what things I need to do every day to, to succeed. And I don't have to, I don't really don't have to go back and look at it because I, as long as I don't deviate from those things that I'm now aware of and that I've now been intentional about, um, I'll be successful. And so to me, the exercise of planning is one of those good decisions that you can make early on that will compound literally just by thoughtfully considering the, the inputs, the components of your business that are going to make you successful. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, speaking of great points, Dan, why don't you bring us to the final one here, number 10, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up from there. Sure thing. So psychology and consumer confidence is the biggest stimulus. We are seeing the opposite of this today. People are convinced that we're heading into recession, thus pulling back on spending. So be intimately aware of consumer confidence. And this is where, this is probably like the one thing that I feel like I, this is why I read so much and why I study all of this stuff so much is because I really do want to know, I mean, there's this concept of the invisible hand, right? That guides or animal spirits that guide the economy and society in the directions that we're heading. And now you can, when you see it waning, you can really, I think, be on the forefront of those opportunities that we mentioned earlier in the episode that are going to be coming. I mean, if you look at mutual fund flows, like I would consider real estate to be a very retail asset. You have a very, I would say, less sophisticated consumer just trying to rush into something that they consider to be a safe asset. And um, mutual funds are, are a great example of how assets like that behave. So they perfectly inverse the tops and bottoms. Mutual funds do. So when the market is at a top, people are rushing in, piling money into these mutual funds because retail's like, oh, we've heard about stocks now. Like, oh, we heard about all of our friends making good returns that they bought five years ago or two years ago. Like, I'm going to get in. I got I can't miss out. And so mutual funds start getting flooded at the top of the market. And then on the flip side, when the market is completely destroyed and there literally is no further down it can possibly go, everyone's disheartened. People start taking money out of mutual funds. So if mutual fund flows literally exactly inverse the market. And I, I, to be honest with you, I would say the exact same thing exists for Canadian real estate. People were piling into the trade in February of 2022 when prices were going up year over year, 10% whole year of 2021. Same thing happened in 2016, 2017. And there was so many people buying, the volume was really high and prices were accelerating. And now we're on the way down and nobody is lining up to buy and everybody is trying to sell. And it's just fascinating to me. So look up what happens with mutual fund flows, look up their ability to perfectly inverse what the market is actually going to do. And then think about whether or not that is possible to happen in, in Canadian real estate. And I mean, there's a, there's a, a saying that, uh, that goes along the lines of, of what I'm trying to say here, Nick. What, what is that saying? I think it's be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. That, that is exactly it. And, and honestly, Dan, yeah, to, to kind of cap this one off, you know, consumer sentiment is, is one of the things that, that I like to follow uh, more closely than than other stats. And funnily enough, I I just went and saw a movie um, the other day. My girlfriend and I saw Dumb Money. Uh, really, really entertaining. I wouldn't call it a great movie, but very entertaining. And it was all about the GameStop and Wall Street bets 
kind of fiasco that uh, that we saw, which actually ended up shutting a hedge fund down who had uh, who had shorted the whole um, that whole side of things. Anyways, just a very very interesting inside look on what happens when consumer confidence can rally. And, uh, and how it can actually change things and then what happens when consumer confidence breaks or, uh, and, and how that can have a, a major effect. So, um, those were the 10 lessons from one of the biggest real estate, uh, owners in the world. Although he only has a salary of $1 a year, he's worth hundreds of millions. Hamid Moganem. Dan, are we thinking that uh, is is Amazon warehouses are are they like the next Starbucks? Like you got to go buy a house but close to an Amazon warehouse kind of thing. I mean, I think that they they certainly could be an indicator like that. They're going to create a lot of jobs. They're going to create a lot of industry and growth in those areas. Might not be a bad idea to buy near a uh, an Amazon warehouse. I think Starbucks probably passed that now. Like I think they're they're actually shuttering stores rather than uh, on a net basis. Um, <laughs> they're contracting rather than expanding. Um, maybe before we wrap up, read a couple of reviews because we always love reviews. We really appreciate them and, uh, it helps us to get more listeners and also to give our potential listeners an idea of what they can expect from the show and whether or not it'll be a good fit for them. So if you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leave us a review. If you are not on Apple podcasts and cannot leave a review, um, maybe just share this on Spotify or whatever other platform you're listening to with a couple of friends. I'd really appreciate that. So a must-listen podcast for Canadian real estate investors. Five stars. It's, and this is from 780587. It can't be his real name, her real name. <laughs> That's like Elon <laughs> Musk's kid's name. Yeah. It's a great resource for anyone interested in real estate investment in Canada. The hosts provide valuable insights and advice that can be beneficial for both beginners and experienced investors. The diverse range of topics covered keeps the content engaging and informative. Overall, it's a valuable resource for anyone looking to learn more about real estate investment in the Canadian market. Well, thank you very much, 780587, and tell Elon Musk I say hi. Um, I'm not going to let you have all the fun here today, Dan, so I gave myself a review as well. This is another five-star review from Always Learning 613 titled, Great Show for New or Experienced Investors. It doesn't matter if you have one door or 100-plus doors. This show is a great resource for all. I've been listening now for... I've been investing now for about 15 years and wish this show was around then. If you're a new investor, this is your lucky day. This show will help you level uh, level off the learning curve and get you going in the right direction. I would recommend that you listen to each episode twice, about a month apart, and you will get great value from it. Wow. You wrote this. You wrote this I, trying to get I, us more views. I wish I did. This This is fantastic. I have been listening since the introductory episode and always find value regardless of the topic. Looking forward to many more years following these two gentlemen. Wow. You know, we read these reviews and I'm looking at Dan. You guys can't see us because you're listening to us, but I'm looking at Dan. He's got a big smile on his face and I've got yeah, a big he's smile warm on my face. Heart, man. This is why you do it, honestly, this, for, they, for like, you know, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. Like it, it's been a grind for us for the last year. It's a lot of work to put, to, to put this out, but it's, it's never not been worth it. And, um, seeing things like this and the messages that people send me on Instagram, at, you know, just thanking me, asking how they can help. I mean, it's, uh, it's really profound. I can't really put words to it, but uh, yeah, thank you all. 
a sincere a sincere thank you from both of us and on that note uh thanks for tuning in hope you got a ton of value out of today's episode and the lessons we went over uh if again if you have any questions or subtopic ideas or anything like that you want to reach out to dan and i emails in the show notes we would love to hear from you until next time everybody we'll talk to you soon the canadian real estate investor podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.